For those of you who have been reloading for a little while, the brand Reading will already be quite familiar. I've been trying to organise an interview with Robin Sharpless, their Vice President, for a little while now. And finally, our schedules have synced together that we're able to spend um, a good hour or so talking about things reading and reloading. Robin is an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to reloading, both of the reading products and their inner workings and what sets them apart from many of the other products out there, and then also just reloading in general. So we cover off a lot of subjects, there's going to be a lot of stuff you can learn in there. Uh, particular interest to me was our discussion regarding neck turning and uh, its relative importance on the, in the greater scheme of things. A little bit about uh, primer pocket forming and consistency which leads to concentricity which leads to lower SD, more accuracy and everything like that. So check it out, this is Robin Sharpless from Reading, enjoy. I would like to think most people who are into the reloading anyway are going to be familiar with Reading as a company. But could you give them a little bit of a history of, of the company, a bit of background where they got going? Absolutely. Reading was founded in 1946 in Cortland, New York, right at the end of the Second World War. And the first product that they ever made was a powder comparator scale. Um, so that we were not, that original scale didn't actually weigh a given weight, but what it did is it allowed you to set a weight and match the charge. Um, and that was, um, uh, again, that was in 46. Uh, the company continued to grow in Cortland. Uh, uh, Mythology says that it actually was started in a chicken coop behind the fellow's house, uh, grew into a very small company, and then continued to grow. Uh, added on dyes, um, added powder measures, additional powder scales, uh, continued to file lots of cool patents on things like our competition seating dyes and all of our things with micrometers on them and in them, and really grew to be a sort of uniquely oriented niche company serving the very high-end or sophisticated reloader. And I don't mean that in terms of just money, but in terms of the, the sophistication of their demands, mm. what they wanted that ammunition to really do. And, and part of it that's interesting is we've always categorized the, the, uh, the, the reloading business into two people. And one person is the reloader, whose primary goal is to produce ammunition as good as commercial qualities at a lower cost so that they can shoot more. And then the hand loader, who's the individual that's looking to do something that you can't buy off the shelf, uh, attain levels of quality that you would never be able to have produced, you know, even by some of the custom ammo houses, hmm. but be able to actually tailor loads to his rifle, his handgun, whatever he's after, so that it either improves accuracy, range, or gives them the opportunity to do something in terms of bullet weights, bullets that aren't available in the commercial market. It's, it's interesting. There was an article I actually put up on my site recently is that difference between the reloader and the hand loader. And I, I shoot, uh, at one end I shoot 9mm pistol for IPSC, which yep. realistically, like you say, is reloading. It's just it's an economical choice where I'm just going through a couple of hundred rounds at a, at a particular session and just want to reload up to up to commercial quality, but I'm only sure. shooting to a distance where that's fine. And then the other end is, like you say, the hand loading for my long range rifle where you're starting to measure every charge and just spend all that time prepping the case and making sure everything is perfect. And it's been tailored to my gun as well. Correct. Um, sure. And it, it's been interesting recently as well is that um, I think as also as some of the 
uh, which we'll talk about later as well and, and with some previous interviews. So I've interviewed the 6.5 guys recently and yep. um, Regina Milkovich. And one thing that's popped yep. out of both of them is they're both using essentially progressives or turret punches, uh, sorry, turret yep. presses for their right. ammo. And, right. and Regina and Tim are big. Uh, Regina and Tim are big Reading fans. In fact, hmm. Regina bent a decap rod, a six XC decap rod, the other day, and Tim wrote me a note and asked to send one out if I would. So yes, we know them well. <laughs> so it's it's also interesting. I think is that the um, the 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 quality of the equipment that's becoming available to us is meaning that um, while still hand loading, we're able to start speeding up that process yes. um, and improving that process, which is nice as well because. Well, I understand a lot of people love spending hours in the reloading uh, room because it's their little bit of solitude and quiet. Sure. Um, I'm also now at the point I'm trying to get out onto the range more and spend more time out there. So, please. No, no. But I was just going to say, and that's one of the interesting things that's happened. Really, after the advent of the T7 turret press, when we came up with that, yep. we were able to provide a press that could <coughs> speed the operation and yet not diminish the quality over a single stage. Mm. And while yes, all turret presses have to have some small amount of give in them, the T7 is designed so that that little bit of, let's say thousandth and a half of tilt that the turret head has, when you put a load on it, it actually tilts it into square. And that's okay. the design of it. So we tilt it into dead square, but the important part of that is we're also, um, you know, we're talking about a 27 pound press and, and quite honestly, I love to liken it to the fact that it would be the same as having seven single-stage presses lined up down your bench. <laughs> Folks talk about that little possible – and it's not really because you can cam over on it just like a good single-stage. Hmm. But they talk about that potential for some small variation. But when we realize we have to back a die out and screw a die in, we're going to create that much or more variation. I uh, actually was – I was tasked and I wrote an article for last year's hand loaders, the big hand loaders digest that came out. And uh, the idea was to look at that whole shoulder bump situation. Yep. And folks that believe you can back a case, you can back a, a die off and set the shoulder. So we started with um, we started with 40 rounds of the same lot of federal match that was fired out of the same rifle at our local sheriff's department range day when they were their precision shooting guys were shooting. So we have exactly the same temperature, exactly the same lot, everything as as similar cases as we can get in a reasonable manner. And the goal was to make a plus six case. And so I did the first one by, you know, playing the game and tweaking the die, tweaking the die until I came up with a plus six. And that's easy on a T7 because I can put an instant indicator with a datum line contactor in the next spot and just click it left and right so I can see where we are. So I made my plus six, and then I took 19 more cases with that exact same setup, and I made 19 more cases, none of which were plus six, <laughs> not a single one. So, so to clarify for people, though, by plus six, you're meaning? Sammy minimum datum line headspace for the chamber plus yep. six. Okay. So yep. that's it, sort of in the middle of the range. But we wanted to pick, pick one that would be a reasonable one to have that was one that was still shorter than what the original rifle had fired to. So let's say we had a plus eight chamber in the rifle. We want to build a plus six round. Um, the interesting part of it was then by using Redding Competition shell holders with a full hard cam over and using a plus six, we made the first one, checked the measurement on the, um, on the indicator and made 20 more or made 19 more. Um, the, the greatest derivation was either rubbing the top or the bottom of the plus six line on the dial indicator. 
Um, yep. Much simpler, much faster. But one of the things that we figure, we find is, remember, we have a very, it's not a poor quality, but it's an intentionally loose fitting thread on dies. It's a class yep. 2A, 2B thread. It's meant to go in and out fast. Well, it has take up, slop in it, so to speak. And even if we think we've got it cranked down tight, remember a really good press at Camover is going to generate almost a couple of tons of force for that absolute instant. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we're pressing it up quite hard. The other thing is each of those axles, each of those shafts in our linkage have to have a thousandth or so, a thousandth, thousandth and a half clearance or they wouldn't rotate. Yep. So when we don't have cam over, we have uh, by best sort of guesstimate based on what we did in that particular day of we photographed everything we did the whole deal a good press a really good press has got six to seven thousandths worth of play in it if you don't hit cam if you don't do the cam over so yep. the beauty of cam over is we eliminate that play we actually create a solid what's called die square which means that the top of the shell holder and the bottom of the die are in such rock solid contact that really nothing else exists at that point mm -hmm. and the third part that folks don't get is that we're creating the greatest possible mechanical advantage of the press. And not that we need the greatest advantage, but we're creating a uniform mechanical advantage. Yes. So that the amount of force generated each time we size a case is the same. Yep. And since we know that accuracy is kind of a game of everything being the same consistency, cam over is, you know, and it doesn't hurt the press. Our presses are designed to handle it. Um, and cam over is really, a, it's, it's, a, it's an absolute necessity in terms of what we believe. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the so, thing. I think people was we sort of know it's that consistency, but then we'll do stuff for uh, ourselves in our own head that is actually removing that consistency, and then try and justify it some other way. It's it, it, we're sort of going to skip a little bit, but it, it sort of relates to this. And it was a question that I actually got asked a couple of times, and it was um, because I was talking to somebody on the phone yesterday, and it was in regards to uh, seating primers. Mm -hmm. And it was the difference between the, I've got a hand seating tool, and right. I was talking to a guy yesterday who, who's using a, um, uh, it's a coax press, so it's mechanical uh, seating, uh, right. Forster. So what's what's your thoughts on the sort of the, the, the hand seating where we, you know, guys are like to say, you know, we're, we're basically seating those primers by feel versus something right. where it's mechanically limiting you to a point where it's going to be the same every time? I think in terms of seating primers, it's much more important to properly prepare the primer pocket. Okay. Yep. And one of the things that we produce is a primer pocket uniforming tool, mm -hmm. which is actually a five-fluted industrial carbide cutter, like you'd find on a little miniature machine tool situation. Yep. So we're cutting with five flutes so there can be no chatter, because an odd number always stops chatter. Okay. And we're cutting to a square solid depth, because of course we've got a stop collar that stops against the, the, the cartridge case head. Um, as long as we know we are getting a good solid bottom, I'm a hand primer guy. I have to tell you the truth. Yeah. I'm the executive vice president of Re running reloading equipment, and I'm still in love with my little Lee <laughs> hand primer yep. because I can just feel that. Yep. Um, guys prime successfully on presses all the time, don't have any problem at all. Um, and, and I know lots of folks that do, but I'm just a big fan of those little hand primers. And that's mm. uh, as much as anything, as long as you have a good – First of all, as long as we have a good, clear, good square primer pocket that's clean, square, and cut to a uniform depth, and we clean our primer and we clean our, our flash hole out, then seating is really a matter of just bottoming it solidly without crushing it. Obviously, yep. if we're if we're misadjusted and we're trying and we're crushing a primer, that's a different story. But as long as we get a good solid bottom, that's all that's really necessary. 
Well, that was what brought it up is this gentleman I was talking to yesterday, he had received some um, loaded rounds with a new firearm he'd bought. And looking at the primers, a couple of the primers seem to be almost a mil further down into that primer pocket than the others. And we were just figuring out reasons why it was. It didn't seem to be crushed. Question came right. up whether they'd actually prepped the, the primer pockets at all, whether mm-hmm. they were even as well. And, um, yeah, that, that's sort of just where that, that question came out of it. And myself included, I'm, I'm hand priming with them. And the one thing it does for me as well is it lets me start feeling, because I was running particularly hot loads for my 308, it lets me okay. start feeling when those primer pockets start to get loose and open up. Um, so, I mean, just to, to, to quantify myself, I'm still relatively new to a lot of the, the shooting and reloading side of things. So part of me doing these shows was for me to be able to get access to guys like you and ask, ask these questions. Absolutely. So, so Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, slightly, slightly um, selfish from that, that point, but then we get to share it with everybody else. So yep. the other thing then that flows into that, which is a question I've got, is at, at what point those primer pockets start loosening up now obviously if your primer starts just falling out then you've got a problem but otherwise at what point do you start going right it's time to actually replace this brass out is there a definitive point or is it just a call one of the things that i would always look for is if i know that i've got cases that are not an overly high pressure load if i'm not right up on the ragged edge and i see primer starting to back even just a little bit yeah i know that my primer pockets are starting to get weak Okay. So that's that's really to me that's really the key. And there's no way to make them smaller. You can we can only make yep. them larger, unfortunately. Yep. Um, the nice thing about the redding tool is that we don't touch the sides at all. We're dealing simply with the base of the pocket so that we can get that square and true in relation square, true and uniform depth in relation to the cartridge case head. Yep. So um, it's it's a nice tool. I really like it. Um, I, I also I I I use it religiously on anything that's important. I mean, I've got some 6.5 Creedmoors down there now, and I, I broke down and bought a new lithium-ion Black & Decker power screwdriver because I don't want to have to do it by hand. And the power and we don't use the power drill because they go too fast. Right. But just the basic you know, power screwdriver is a nice speed that you can use with it. It comes with a little adapter to fit the power screwdriver. And um, I, I loaded 40 the other night, and it's just, okay, so put that one in the power screwdriver, go in and do the, uh, do the primer pockets. Then when I was done with that, flip over and put my, um, my uh, flash hole uniforming tool in, which in our case uses a, it uses a, um, a pilot stop. So we're actually coming in from the neck end. Yes. So we're keeping everything very precise. But the really neat thing, too, that I like about ours is above the actual bit, if you will, that's going to ream that primer pocket or that, that flash hole uniform is there is a small um, rebated taper so that mm-hmm. what we're doing is we're actually creating a, a cone inside of the, the flash hole or at the end of the flash hole. So the dispersion of the brissants is much more uniform. We're not gotcha. doing a jet of flame, but we're allowing that flame to go out and hit more powder. Yep. Again, back to, back to the consistency piece. Hmm. And have you found, I mean, everyone has their, you know, some guys will say, and, and I was, when I was doing this as well, I picked up uh, Lapua brass. So everybody mm-hmm. said, okay, you've got to prep all your brass unless you get the Lapua because it's nearly there. Would you just go ahead and do it anyway to any bit of new brass just for your own peace of mind? A couple of technical pieces about Lapua. Lapua drills their flash holes hmm. where everyone else pierces their flash holes right when we have a pierced flash hole we're going to have a little bit of flash of material that's going to be thrown out another reason that i think our tool's sort of neat in that it's got that 
it's got that little taper because it's going to clean that off. It's going to kind of cut that edge, that raggedy edge off. Yep. So if anything is going up into the case, it's going to loosen it so we can remove it. Um, even with Lapua, I would still probably take the flat, the primer pocket uniforming tool so that I know all my depths are exactly the same. Mm. Um, flash holes on them tend to be better because they're drilled and not pierced. But, but again, if you're, I'll, I'll go back to this point. If we're spending that much money on cases, why not spend another 15 <laughs> seconds to make them perfect? Yeah, yeah. And then it, it's one more thing that you've removed when you're on the line and actually pulling that trigger that you don't have in your back of your head. I wonder if I should have got rid of those. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, there's a there are th- it, many years ago, I was with a different company. I was a senior vice president of Shytech, and I was making a presentation to the general staff of the Italian Army. No disrespect to the Italian Army, but their snipers were training at 300 meters as their maximum engagement range. And I walked in with a sniper weapon system that was good for 2,300 yards. Yeah, yeah. So I literally, it's like I stepped off of a spaceship. And I had to come up with, I had to come up with a, uh, a theory, a way to explain all of what we were doing at Shytech between the ballistic computers and the things that were done, balance flight. Shytech's a whole other story. Yeah. But. I came up with three magic words, which now apply, apply to everything with reloading. And that is identify, quantify, and mitigate. If we can identify a variable, if we can lay a tool on it to quantify that variable, and then create a mitigation strategy for that variable, we diminish it. We'd love to say we remove it, but we diminish it to the point where it's not as affecting. So whether we talk about wind, whether we talk about uh, powder charges, internal case capacities, and, and let's just get to this because we can identify the fact that a primer pocket that's of a, de- of a different depth is going to cause a different flash. Yep. We're going to engage the primer differently. We're going to, it's not going to, it's, it, you know, maybe it's not seated deep enough. Maybe it's not seated flat, whatever, but we can identify that as a potential problem. We can quantify it through the idea that we can measure after we put a primer in it. But the beautiful mitigation strategy is always, we'll take a tool and we'll make them all exactly the same. Hmm. Um, that pretty much comes with everything from you know bullet seating, primer's depth, case capacities, powder charges, if we look at that. And, and we, the beauty is let's look at every possible variable that there is out there and say, can we identify this as a variable? Is there a way, is there a tool, is there a method that we can quantify that? Okay, great, if we can quantify it, then we can mitigate through making all of that quantification the same from case to case to case. And now we get back to the only problem is the adjustment of the nut behind the trigger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you can ever figure out, out a way of completely mitigating the need to call for win, please, please let me know because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> unfortunately it's thousands of dollars and some of somewhat classified. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there was another conversation I was having similar to something to that, some of the um, the gear that yeah we might see actually publicly in another five or ten years, maybe. Yep. Yep. Um, so, I mean, you sort of touched on what you were doing before reading. Do you, did you have a background in engineering or how did you sort of get to where you are now? I, I, I had a marketing degree, except I grew up, as you and I have discussed before, racing motorcycles being very technical, keeping a mini bike running when I was six years old. Mm. And um, I, I think it's the, what is it? The, some, the best engineers in the world have common sense first. Yeah. Yep. So we can look at a lot of problems from the standpoint of common sense. And I, I'll use the word physics, but let's think of it in terms of the physical world as opposed to, you know, the high math astrophysics. Yep. But the physics of how things work 
And that has a great deal to do with what's what's going on in uh, good hand loading and even to that point in firearms design. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to make it easier for the we want to make it easier for the user. We want to make it interesting point. And I'm not I don't want to make this sound like it's a show about everything that Reading makes and sells. But we build a tool called the instant indicator that does about seven things. And if it were really well designed, it would do two because it does seven extremely well, but it confuses everyone. Yeah. Um, the beauty of this tool is that it gives you very, very critical dimensioning on a lot of different things to do with the case, the bullet reloading and all. But it does it on a press mm-hmm. where the average guy can stick the case in the, sh- in the shell holder, pull the handle up until the shell holder hits the bottom of it and we're done. Yeah, he doesn't have to know how to, you know, he doesn't have to be a machinist. He doesn't have to know how to really delicately use his calipers and things like this. It's just stick it in, just like we're loading, pull the handle up, and it goes. And you know, after you, for instance, on datum line headspace, we provide a uh, a SAMI minimum headspace gauge. So we run it all the way up till it touches the bottom, and we set our our dial indicator on top to zero. Yep. Well, then any other case we put in there, it's going to be plus something or minus something. Yep. Very easy to do. We're not handling the case. We're not trying to hold it between two things that are clamped on to our dial caliper, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, it gets easy to do. Hmm. And that's really one of the unique things that the company has done over the years. I mean, you look at all the things we put micrometers on. Well, that's a high level of sophistication. It absolutely is. But guess what? If I want to seat my bullet 2,000 steeper, I can turn my mic head 2000. I don't have to be, I don't have to do the calculations in my mind that let's see, that's a 24 thread pitch. And how far do I have to turn that to move it 2000, which realistically yep. isn't going to happen. You're not yep. going to do it. You know, you, you sort of do the twist and hope method until you get close and usually go too deep with one first. Or, or, beauty- or often what you're doing is you're then pulling it out onto the Michael Carpers back yep. in, back out, back in, back out. Yep. Oh, gone too far. Right. You have to try that again. Yep. Back in, back out. Um, I have a funny story on that, if I might take a minute. Sure. I came up years ago, I wrote a little white paper, and I think it appears in our tech tip section called Point of Engagement. And one of the big issues, obviously, to keep that consistency of our our pressure curve, my golden retriever is begging for attention right now, um, <laughs> that pressure curve is that we want to have that bullet seated to the exact same depth. Yep. The misnomer is that people think that that means cartridge overall length. It doesn't. Pressure curve is a, fu- a function of how far the bullet moves before it engages the rifling, and then we get the big curve. Right. We have the little curve, start yep. pressure, as the bullet starts to move. Pressure drops because we're expanding volume. Mm-hmm. Pressure hits a low point, then it hits the rifling, and then we get our big pressure curve. Since ultimate pressure is usually a, is a function of the amount of heat and pressure that we – the Sorry. amount of heat and pressure that we start with when we hit the pressure curve, if we jump further and that drops more, we're never going to generate all the heat, if you will, that the powder is capable of. Mm. And that particular round is going to go low. Yep. So back to that instant indicator. One of the tools that comes in it is a bore diameter contactor. So we can actually measure or compare. Yep. Measure is the wrong word because it's yep. a comparator. So we can actually compare um, cartridge case head to land bearing point on that on any given round with this we can we'll start out and we'll make a dummy round right into the lands Mm -hmm. and then once i'm done with my dummy round for that particular firearm i just goop it up with with uh, crazy glue so it'll never move again right yep (laughs) at the the case mouth um so what i'm going to do is i'm going to run that up into my indicator and i'm going to set that as my zero because that's Mm. into the lands yep now 
I'm going to now the beauty of this is I want to be six thousandths off the lands with every round. So what I do is I take my T7 so I can click from station to station, set up my Reading competition um, seating die with a micrometer on top and just arbitrarily back it off a little bit. Seat the bullet long intentionally mm -hmm. because on each bullet, the point that the contactor of the seater impacts the bullet and the point where the land bearing point are, they're in different places on every bullet made. Yep. Yep. That which is made by the hand of man will never be perfect because it's mm -hmm. not made by the hand of God. So, but the distance between the two on any given bullet remains the same, irregardless mm -hmm. of how many times we push on it. So we intentionally seat long, we click our turret head over, we run it up into our indicator, which has been set for into the lands, and we read that it is plus 12. Okay, no big deal. We click it back, we grab our micrometer, we run it in 18 thousandths. And Done. now we've seated it. Now, the coolest part of this is when I first put the paper together, I had a fellow, and this goes back about five years, who was a team burger bench rest guy that got even hand-selected bullets because he was just that category. Yep. Told me uh, it's not going to make any difference. Da 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 da. <laughs> well, he went ahead and did it and called me on the phone, very apologetic, because <laughs> in just twenty rounds, by using my method, knowing that our bullet jump into the lands where pressure is going to change, because quite honestly, the nose of that bullet could go, you know, ten thousands further down the barrel, but until yes. it touches, pressure doesn't change. Yep. As long as the weights are the same. And he called me and he apologized because in those first 20 that he used with my system, he had a, mar he had a, ma a maximum cartridge overall length variance of eight thousandths. <laughs> and he admitted that his group sizes got even better after he did the idea yeah. of using that. But yeah. again, that's back to that tool that it'd be very difficult for a guy that wasn't a machinist to do that with yes. hand tools. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've done it with the systems where you're you're putting something, um, you know, through the back of the action with a bit of plastic right. rod, and then you measure it, and oh, okay, and they'll even say do it five times and average it because they yep. know there's going to be enough variance or slop in that way of measuring it that way, or mm -hmm. the other guys have a dowel down the other end of it, and you just you just know that there's only a limit of accuracy that there could ever be. Um, and it was something I was saying to we we did a um, long range shooting fundamentals course on the weekend, and we did a bit okay. of theory. So at the beginning, we ended up we were explaining mills and MOA, and had some figures mm -hmm. up there. and And I pointed out to the guys it was that one time for a lot of us since we've got out of school that things like maths, some of the sciences, some of the physics are actually going to be applicable. And yes. it's I think I've heard it said a few times. It's one really nice thing about reloading and shooting in general is that we get to apply some of these sciences. And for us guys, in a very, very practical, we can instantly see the results of us taking that time to understand things like variance and the measurements. We load it, round Absolutely. up, pull trigger, and we've got instant satisfaction of our work. Oh, sure. Mm. And I mean, the same thing with like running ladders on seating depth. You know, yeah. I'm going to try some, I'm going to try some at 10,000 soft. I'm going to try some at 8,000 soft, you know, and I'm going to, and I can watch. What's interesting is I watch my group get smaller. Yep. And then start to get larger again. So yep. we 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 have quantified that that spot, if you will, in the bell curve mm. of where we want to be. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun. And again, that's another reason that the micrometers are so nice. It's because it's so darn easy to do mm. instead of trying to figure it out, you know, with a more traditional seating die that's got a good heavens. <laughs> in some cases, you've got a, a little nut and you've got a screwdriver slot in the top of a piece of rod. So yep. this works out a little bit better.
But again, that's always been our place in the market. And Reading has sort of changed, evolved, and grown over the years because two things have happened. One, we know there's a discernible change in who the beginning hand loader, reloader is. Mm -hmm. um, traditionally, it was guys like when I was started reloading, I didn't have enough money. So this was if I could scrounge together enough uh, a press and some dies and whatnot, I could save money and shoot more. Um, and I was young. And traditionally, the guys coming into the reloading market were in that sort of 18 to 24 bracket. Yeah. Um, what we've seen with sort of the worldwide ammunition shortage that occurred for a while there um, is that fellows that were older and more sophisticated started to be first time hand loaders. Mm. And, and maybe more sophisticated is the wrong word, but they'd also grown up enough in the shooting sports to realize ask the old guy instead of being smarter than everybody else because you're young. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's had a tremendous that's had a tremendous impact on Reading, yeah. Because we get we get feedback from individuals that say things like, "Well, you know, I I, I had to get into hand loading and I, I needed to do this because I couldn't find what I wanted and I wasn't getting the quality or it just wasn't available," and to continue competing or doing whatever. And so I sort of asked the guy at the you know I asked the guy around the club that's always done this for years and and in many cases I get the same answer which is he said you know just spend the money and buy Reading first instead of uh, trying to save a little bit of money along the way in the long run if you buy the you, you buy the good stuff and you buy it one time yes yep and you get it yeah well that's the thing for a lot of people it's like you can end up there anyway so. Right. It, although, and I've had instances with even with other industries as well. Sometimes, ironically, it's nice to have something that you have to struggle a little bit with, so you can wow. truly appreciate what you end up with at the end. Um, That's true. And, too. and sometimes you jump straight into the high end thing, which some guys will do, and I, I just don't think they ever, yeah, quite get to appreciate the the, the level of equipment they've actually ended up with. Well, what's interesting little. is one of the one of the things that we've done to respond to just what you're talking about. Mm is some of the new die sets that have come out in the last five or six years. Um, traditionally, competition seating dies were only available in sets with Type S bushing style dies or Type yep. S bushing competition dies. And because we found these competitors that had, if you will, a different need structure, yep. um, we created things like the national match die set. So we've got the uh, the semi-automatic military match shooter that really needs a standard full-length sizing die. Because he's not buying 500 or 1,000 rounds of Lapua from one lot like you would want to do with a bushing die. Yep. Um, he needs that full-length sizing. He needs that expander ball that's going to be able to open necks back up because there's going to be brass neck wall variation. Because a lot of these guys, you know, they're shooting – well, they're buying, uh, they're buying Lake City off of the internet once fired that came from somewhere who knows where, who knows what. Yep. But they still want the – they want the precision of the competition seating die. So we add that, and then for those fellows, we add also a taper crimp die, mm -hmm. because if we're running big mags, we we want to make sure we've got more crimp than just the bullet seating. Because the other thing that's occurred in those is we guys that are serious military match shooters, they're not shooting bullets with cantilovers in them anymore for long long distances, so you can't crimp them without a taper crimp. Gotcha. <laughs> yep. Because our traditional crimp on a 223-06 or a uh, 30, uh, a 308, things like that, it's going to be a roll crimp into a cantalore. Well, you know, good bullets, higher BC bullets don't have a cantalore. Don't anymore. have it, yep. So a taper crimp makes all the sense in the world. The other thing we added for the more sophisticated hunter 
is we added our Master Hunter series, which are basically just a full-length sizing die because, again, an ethical hunter is going to full-length size. We don't want to risk a neck-sized die on a follow-up shot under stress when we've got a an injured an injured you know game mm-hmm. animal. Yep. <laughs> but we still have good bullets. Again, good hunting bullets don't have cantalores in them anymore either. Mm-hmm. So we're loading them with uh, a comp- we can load them with that competition seating die because it doesn't yep. it doesn't have a crimp in it. So it's been a place where we've sort of tried to bridge that gap between the competitive shooter and his needs mm. and the more serious hunter, the more serious the, the hand loader who goes hunting, the hand loader who's serious about his national match because <laughs> remember when we're taking an hour 15 out to 600 yards, we've got to, you know, ammo does start to count at that point. Yes. Yep. Yep. And it's also interesting as well as the more that I've been learning about it, you start learning those little, those subtle little differences out towards the end or the finish of it, like you say, like crimping or the the where the full length versus just the neck sizing. And the difference is often, yeah, am I hunting? Am I shooting it in a semi-automatic? Is it a bolt? Um, and it, it's those little bits of information that can just make make the difference in a real practical sense. You know, the first yep. time you see a guy's read on the internet that, uh, you know, you want to seat, seat the projectile into the lands, but it's a hunting round or something like that. So he seats it, animal goes away, pulls it open. Now he's got powder and everything all through his action. Right. Um, right. It, it, it is. It's quite important, and we were. It's something we stress is is even with our our shooting courses. Like, well, what is your end goal? Do you want to hunt? Do you want to be hitting bits of paper? Do you want to be hitting bits of steel? Because they're all just slight little tweaks, just depending which way you're wanting to to take it. Um, it's certainly not one size fits all, which is is great because you get to learn those little um, idiosyncrasies specific to what you're after. Well, it's one of those comments that I like to make to folks when they say, oh, I can neck size and go hunting with it. And I said, you know, you can neck size on the range all day long because I've yet to see a piece of paper crawl off the range and bleed out somewhere yep. where you can't find it. Yep. And uh, so that's perfectly fine. Or I have the fellows that say, well, I, it's OK because I neck size, but I sit in the living room and I run everyone through the rifle before I take it out hunting. I said, well, the living room's not minus 20 degrees with <laughs> snow and mud in the action. Yeah. Yeah. So... And it's the thing, and I've watched guys on the range as well who are uh, neck sizing and they're just unable to chamber rounds and stuff like that. And like you say, it doesn't really matter, although they've probably now just lost the match if there's a time time right. limit on it, but it, it doesn't really matter. But yeah, ethically, morally, as um, and humanely, yes, you don't want to be doing that in the field, either A, because the, the, the trophy of a lifetime is about to get away, or even worse, yes, you've injured something and, and now that's limping away and you need to actually do the job properly. Correct. So, um, uh, okay. yeah, it, it, it's one thing, and it's been a like you mentioned. You know, the the guys talking to the guys who have got the experience where they've got available, and but what I find for myself, where where I am in in Auckland, it's a very um, it's one of our biggest cities, and there's a lot of guys getting into hunting and into shooting where they haven't had that access to those that knowledge base and those people. So, like myself included, a lot of my early learning was all on the the internet. Mm-hmm. which is great. A lot of information, too much information sometimes out there and contradicting information as well. Right. And one thing that really uh, still confuses me and you, you're obviously going to be in a great place to give me some quite specific guidance for this is for the uh, the neck sizing and specifically for the, the bushings, bushing dies mm-hmm. going from right. um, full length or onto a bushing. And so I, I guess, can you just talk about 
a little bit about the point where guys are wanting to maybe look at going onto a bushing diet, sure. and sure. Uh, you know, and how um, it'll be a big thing possibly, but how um, neck turning goes into that, and then additionally the expandable in the middle because I've read pages that go well if you're doing a bushing you probably don't want the expander in the middle and other ones are like well no you should always still be using that expander even if you're in a bushing there you okay. go <laughs> so that's about there's about four good questions in there yes, but we'll, yeah, I realize we'll start, that no 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 because it's a good theme let's you know well yep. it's not a paragraph it's a chapter yeah but so <laughs> let's talk about a let's talk about die design first and what we as a manufacturer have to do to accommodate all of the brass that meets either the SAMI or CIP standard that's out there. Because the most difficult thing we have to get our head around is we build a die that create that sizes an outside diameter to make a specific inside diameter to hold that bullet. Hmm. Okay. Yep. Now we have a range of wall thicknesses that are allowed under the SAMI and CIP specs. So there's a min and a max. The problem is the min wall means that we have to size it. We have to make a smaller OD to create the ID that we want. Mm -hmm. And let's pick let's pick thirty oh let's pick three oh eight just to make it easy because yep. we 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 know it's a three oh eight bullet. So we're going to look for an internal neck diameter of somewhere between three oh six and three oh six five for a good neck tension. Yep. Um, the problem is we could have some very thin walled Winchester brass that might have a wall that's only six or six and a half thousandths thick. But we could have some Lapua brass out there that's got a wall that's 11 thousandths thick. Mm -hmm. Remember, we have to double that number because the wall is on both sides. So when we look at it, we say, wow, so, okay, if we're going to have to work with a, let's just say the Sammy Min for the neck wall thickness is seven thousandths. So we need to, we need to create seven and seven is 14 plus 306 is 320. Yep. So we would have an internal neck diameter of 320 in the die to size the, the OD to 320 to create a 306 interior. We run that up against an 11 thousandths wall thickness. Well, now we've got 308 plus 22, so we've got 330. Mm. So if we size it to the same outside diameter, we've in fact now made a neck wall, a neck, an internal neck, it's not 306, it's 296. Yep. It's 10,000, it's too small. Yep. And if we get way too small, we can get into the problem where we can actually cave the neck into the shoulder when we're trying to seat the bullet. Mm. That's what the expander button is for. The expander ball, expander button is for, is we pull that back through and reopen the neck to the proper diameter. Right. Yep. Okay. That being said, the bushing guy says, well, wait a minute. I don't want to have to – I bought that Lapua brass. I've got that nice thick wall that I want to keep because it's going to last longer. It's not going to split. It's going to be more stable. And I don't want to work it down so far and work it back up so far that I induce a great deal of stress into that brass, which is where our problems come from. You know, The idea that an expander button or a bent decap rod is going to really pull the neck off, it, it's, it, it's more a function of – we have a problem with inducing stress into the brass and stress in, stress out. You know, yeah. I'm sure as a young man with a with a dirt bike, you've you've been a you've been a uh, you've been a brake a brake lever or a, a clutch lever, and yeah, you don't bend them back. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, yep. brass does the same thing, it, except it you know it's it's resistant to those stresses that are put into it. And it wants to fight back. So, with a bushing, <clears throat> what we want to do is we want to take that same scenario. And we want to create that 306 internal or let that 3065 internal. 
So we're going to buy the bushing that is appropriate. And the easiest way to do that is we measure the neck of a loaded round. Mm-hmm. Now, the beauty is that most manufacturers supply their brand new brass ready to accept the bullet. So we can take a, uh, a half a dozen of our brand new Lapua cases, or our, especially our brand new Lapua Palma cases with small flash with small primer pockets. Yep. And we can load bullets in them, and we measure them on the outside with a caliper, and we come up with a number. We deduct two thousandths from that number to create our. 306 internal because yep. that number is reflective of both sides of the neck plus the bullet diameter of 308. Um, Richard Beebe, who is the president of Reading and really the guy that has all of the patents and designed all of the really cool stuff and was quite a bench rest guy in his day as well, still runs an expander button. And mm-hmm. the reason is, and this gets into those little teeny details mm-hmm. that, that that separate the you know that, that give you that last thousandth of an inch difference on the bench rest competition. Well, let's think about it. We have an OD that we're sizing to create an ID. That means any flaw, any difference in the outside of the case is going to get pushed in. Yep. Which is going to impact bullet release on one side or the other. Mm-hmm. Let's say we've got a little dimple in there somewhere, something that's, so that's going to make the bullet not release as well or release properly. So Richard has always been one that he likes to size it down two thousandths and then open it up about a half. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Redding in general, the Redding, competi- the Redding um, carbide size buttons are roughly that one and a half thousandths under. Yep. So if we size the neck down two, we open it up a half, we're not really inducing any kind of a stress Yep. But if there's an anomaly inside of that neck, we're pushing it out of the way. Yep. And that's a critical piece. So I think I got all my, oh, neck turning is the only one I didn't do. Yeah. That's right. Now we'll talk about neck turning. As a company, we believe that neck turning exists for one reason. And that reason is that we have a special tight neck chamber developed by our gunsmith that is smaller than the SAMI or CIP spec. And we start neck turning brass that's already perfect. Mm-hmm. In other words... If we take something like our Redding case neck gauge, which is allows us to measure wall thickness all the way around the circumference of the neck, and we have a, a run out on a variance in that of case of three and a half thousandths, we throw that case away. Right. Because all the turning in the world is not going to fix it. Because the only reason the neck got that way is the whole case is that way all the way down to the all the way down to the case head. And how that occurs is that when the cup is initially dropped into the drawing die. Mm-hmm. It wasn't properly centered. So we have a thick side and a thin side that runs all the way up. As that brass starts to move and flow, we get what's called oil canning, where the thicker side is going to push the neck off at an angle anyway. Yep. So unfortunately, the only thing to do with those that we <laughs> folks like to say, well, I'm going to turn the neck and it's going to be perfect. Uh, yeah. Well, let's go another direction on that too. And that is, think about what we're trying to do, we're trying in, in for pure accuracy, we're trying to make a cartridge case that is as conformal to the chamber as possible so that we wind up with a bullet that is perfectly axially aligned to the bore diameter, the, the center of the bore of the barrel. The neck is part of what helps us with that. Yes, we push the shoulder up in, mm-hmm. but if we have a, a neck that is closer to the neck portion of the chamber, our bullet is more is better aligned to yep. start with. If you look at the Reading competition um, neck, the competition bush neck sizing die with the sliding sleeve and everything inside of it, mm-hmm. the micrometer is on top of that for one reason, and that is to only size the portion of the neck deemed necessary. Why? Because 
hardcore bench rest guys want to leave the rest of that neck expanded as fully as possible to get better bore axis alignment. Gotcha. And yet we have folks with neck turning tools telling us we should turn all that extra metal off so it yes. can really flop up and down inside of the chamber. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, the only reason if you have a true tight neck chamber, in other words, you have a barrel made by XYZ Barrel Company that says, um, you know, 223 REM or 243 WIN, and then it has a three digit dot three digits after it that tell you what that neck is, and mm -hmm. that's smaller, that's why we turn. Yep. And, you know, we're at that point, we're turning so that we don't have case growth and et cetera, because we're, we can be that precise. But for the, the fellows that think they can take um, non-concentric neck walls and turn it into something else, it really doesn't help. Mm. So, yeah, neck turning as a process is something that's probably further down the line than many people would think. It's not something we can take bad brass and fix it by just neck turning nope. it. We're taking right. good brass with the good rifle and then matching the two in, Correct. That, in that way. Correct, because we've got a barrel that is actually made with a neck that is tighter than the SAMI or CIP specification, minimum spec. Yep, yep. Okay. So yeah, as a guideline, until the guys are looking at, at the match grade barrels that have been cut specifically, neck turning is probably not something that's really going to give the return for the amount of time that you're going to have to spend actually doing it. I have a very good friend who is an extremely good long-range shooter, very capable hand loader, actually uh, works for me part-time in customer service covering the phones during SHOT Show and when I've got a lot of my guys out, who called me recently and said, Robin, I just, oh, it's great. He said, I got a heart rifle barrel. I got a, a, a two twenty two barrel, you know, with a with a uh, tight neck and this and that that was a, it was a takeoff. I hardly had anything shot through it. What should I do? I said, send it back up to the hearts and have it rechambered to a standard neck. Mm. And he went, well, why would you want to do that? I said, Parker, if someone called you and said, hey, I got access to this dairy farm that's just loaded with woodchucks and we've got a big hill and we can shoot them from 600 yards and we have to go tomorrow, do you really want to sit up all night and turn next tonight for that rifle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, he, you know, and again, it's a very specialized rationale behind that. Mm. And again, it's, it's advanced. Is, is it necessary? Sure. If you've, if you're shooting bench rest, if you're highly, you know, if you're a top tier competitor in long range shooting, it can be. Yeah. But remember, we got to start, you know, remember the, the crazy thing about the bench rest guys are they go out and they buy a thousand brand new Lapua cases and sort through and hope to get 50 that they're going to use this season mm. and throw 950 away. Mm. Well, you and I, and most of the fellows that probably watch this broadcast aren't that guy. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. And don't don't intend to be as well. That's the that's the other thing. Yep. Yep. So I guess it's when it comes to reloading, there is there's there's things like everyone's looking for that sort of that secret um, step that's going to give them the perfect concentric ammo, the best ammo ever, and um, you have certain things that maybe are you know further down the line or are not the holy grail. So on the flip side, then I mean, in your opinion, what what is? And I know there's multiple steps, and they all need to be there. But is there anything a particular step that that kind of stands out for you as one of the most important steps that's going to give you the most bang for your buck, basically? Yeah. Yes. And that is using something like a case neck gauge or a ball micrometer and actually measuring your necks. Mm. Because if you wind up with brass that's three and a half thousandths thicker on one side than the other, yep. it's virtually impossible to make a concentric load. 
And we get down to a very simple reason. We are going to size that and create a perfectly concentric OD when we run it through either our, our neck die, our full length die, or even our bushing die. But then when we go to pull that expander back through and guys say, oh, I don't use an expander. Okay. When we go to push that bullet in, yeah, something's going to happen. And that is that we have the, the age old physical adage of the path of least resistance. If I'm pushing something that's perfectly round into a hole that's egg shaped, mm. egg shape is going to turn out somewhere. And what really happens is we will generally find a greater variance in the finished round than even the difference that's in the case neck wall itself. Yep. Because the, the, the thin side of the wall gives up faster, causing the bullet to initiate to the bullet to seat off to that side. Yes. Because we're, we're pushing something around into something that isn't round. Yep. One is one side is strong. One side is weak. The weak side breaks down and the bullet's going to drift off that way. So mm-hmm. if we look to try and find brass that is say a that within a thousandth and a half, something like that, two thousandths maybe. But gosh, if we if we get up into that three and three and a half thousandths range in case neck wall variation, we're never, we can do anything we want and we're not going to really get a concentric load. Hmm. And it's something I think that's the point I'm at. I'm realizing now is I can go and get more and more uh, tools, dies, equipment, all these things. But what I have started doing and need to do more of is, like you say, start measuring, start quantifying things, so I can actually go, oh, well, that has made a difference, or that hasn't made a difference. Because otherwise, all you all you can go by is what you're reading and the marketing material and all these things. Right. But you can actually measure it yourself and go, yeah, that made a difference. No, it didn't make a difference. Oops, yep. I've just done something terrible. What did I do? Fix it, you know? Well, someday it may get finished because it's a real back burner project, but I started it about five <laughs> years ago and I started writing a thing to put on our website that's actually entitled The Concentricity Manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it really, and that's really where it all starts. It starts with the quality of the components. Mm. If we have, we can take bad components and put them through the most expensive dyes in the world and we're going to wind up with bad on the end. We can take really good components and put them through uh, very inexpensive tools and do pretty darn good. If we have yep. really good components and we use really good tools, uh, case in point, uh, our competition seating die, you know, it holds patents for reasons that, uh, okay, first off, it's unlike any other die in that it has the sliding sleeve inside, mm-hmm. which is really a fully formed rifle chamber. Right. So we're constraining that cartridge case at the shoulder, just like it would be in the chamber of a rifle. The portion above that, where the bullet actually rides, is just a few ten thousandths over bullet diameter. And that's very important because what we're doing is we then have a uh, free-floating cedar above it, which has not only been machined, but then centerless ground for perfect, for perfect concentricity, for perfect round diameter, that is actually bullet diameter. Now, if we are if we're bearing on the land bearing point of the bullet, the mm-hmm. largest diameter, and then we have a cedar in the top, which has a taper inside that the bullet centers inside of that is also that same diameter, we've turned that bullet into an axle between two bearings. Right. Yep. yep. So the bullet has to be dead square and straight as it gets ready to seat. Hmm. We... The reason for the sliding sleeve is the sliding sleeve now moves up with that. So we've constrained the shoulder. Yep. So we know the case is concentric to this 
diameter, this axis that we've created. We have the bullet on that exact same axis concentrically mm -hmm. before we ever start to seat. And then that's why the sliding sleeve compresses up in. And then ultimately the top of that free floating seater impacts on a little driver that's sitting at the bottom of the micrometer, which actually pushes the bullet in. Right. If I wish I had one here to do, it's kind of fun. Uh, if you ever get to the shot show, we'll do it and show you. Hmm. But What's amazing is the precision of that tool is so great that if we take it apart and we take the sliding sleeve out and you put your thumb under the bottom of the sliding sleeve to seal the air and you take the free-floating seat plug and you push it in, it'll actually bounce back up. It actually compresses air and yeah. will bounce back up. Yep, yep. So will a good quality bullet. Ah, okay. Yes. So we can prove the guarantee that we're actually bearing on those two points. And when I say bearing, it's like a set of bearings. Yep. And now we think of that as an axle. And an axle has to run true between a set of bearings. Yep. Yep. And now we've constrained the shoulder and we've got the shoulder pushed up into the shoulder. So everything's in a perfect axial line. Uh, not us, but there's a few places on the Internet where you've had machinists and folks that have gone out and done their own independent testing. And there are two or three different um, good writers out there that have done it well and have actually been able to document that they made a more concentric finished round than the components that they started with by using our competition seating die. <laughs> Very nice. Yes. Very nice. So uh, then, then the flip side again. There's, yes. uh, and there may be something you can think of. There's nothing I can specifically think of at the moment. But is, is there certain uh, processes or equipment and stuff out there without um, without intentionally trying to slag anybody or have a go? No, no, no. But nope. are there certain things out there for people? For we'll say the uh, we'll say not necessarily the high end bench resters, but the guys right. who are um, either sure. hunting and want the best ammo they can yep. provide for that, yep. or the the long range shooters, guys who are still shooting out distance. So concentration is important. They're they're competing, things like that. Are mm -hmm. there any things that you find are just overhyped at the moment that is maybe we're thinking too hard or too much about that we don't need to worry about as much as maybe we do? Or is um, it all important? <laughs> I think what I would like to say to everyone is whenever we're looking at a brass cartridge case, whenever we're looking at a bullet, whenever we're looking at anything that we deal with mechanically, mm. do as little harm or damage, affect it as minimally as possible, and we're better off. Yep. Um, I'll throw another tool into the mix, and that's our competition shell holders. Because again, with a good solid cam over, you know, a standard set of dies for a 23 to 30 degree shoulder, 308, 223, things like that, is designed to push that shoulder back eight thousandths under a SAMI minimum chamber, anticipating a, an obtrusion in the other direction, a spring back yep. of about six. Because back to it, we have to design everything around the mins. Hmm. Well, that's much more work than, you know, the real world is gun companies don't go out and buy their chamber reamers at minimum. Because mm -hmm. as we sharpen them, they get smaller. You yep. buy a chamber reamer at maximum. Yep. You run X number of barrels on it. You regrind it, and it gets a little shorter. And you regrind it, and it gets a little shorter. And you, and eventually, when it gets down somewhere between six and four thousandths over minimum, it's probably had enough wear and tear on it that it blows into a million pieces from stress. Yes. Yep. So the idea of of getting a super tight chambered barrel without going to a custom gunsmith is is really not. It's not realistic yep so what we in, so what we do is by offering our competition shell holders we allow you to set that datum line on your shoulder 
Um, they come in a set of plus two, four, six, eight, and 10. Mm -hmm. So if we were to use that same die that's designed to push it back to eight thousandths under and spring back to two thousandths under, except we've got a plus eight chamber, we use a plus eight competition shell holder. Now, it's exactly the same thickness and outside dimensions as a standard shell holder, mm -hmm. but we've we've cut the key seat deeper. The key yep. seat is what the bullet actually slides into. So we've cut our key seat deeper by eight thousandths, which means the shell holder is going to interfere with the die eight thousandths sooner, yep. causing the shoulder to not go as far up, i.e. it can't be pushed as far back. So the beauty of this is now, if we do that full cam over and we do what we're supposed to do, we've not pushed it back to eight thousandths under. We've pushed it back to Sammy Min, anticipating a spring back of six, which will take us to a plus six on an, on an eight thousandths. We're perfect. We're, we've got that just thousandth and a half to two thousandths off the shoulder, which allows good and proper function, but does not have a have a you know we're not slamming around in there we're not stretching cases every time and possibly you know two or three loadings down the pike losing a case head because of a result mm -hmm. so you know folks throw the excessive headspace thing around it's not it has excessive headspace it's simply more headspace you, you've you've got a cartridge that's been loaded shorter than it need be for your rifle yep yep as as a matter of fact you know remember we have a set of specifications for cartridge and chamber at Redding, we don't want to make a minimum cartridge. We want to make a cartridge that fits a minimum chamber because yep. a minimum cartridge is even shorter and it would kill our case life even faster. Yeah. Well, we, I think it's important for people to realize as well, and it gets a little, just to that little bit of engineering knowledge of that idea of the minimum and the maximums and the tolerance. And, um, you know, my day job involves plastic injection molding, and mm -hmm. we have a similar thing that the pipe manufacturers, they'll want to do everything to minimum because right. then that's less material they physically sure. use. And sure. us, as making the fittings, we tend to go on the other end to the maximum to ensure that it's sure. always going to fit the different bits of pipe. So uh, right. even though we're all working on the same spec, there's potentially you get some combinations just have that little bit of play. Um, yep. And it's just that understanding. And we know we know on our end if somebody says, oh, they're not fitting, well, it's not us because we've got these massive steel dies that don't move. Versus right. pipe extrude, but it's a separate separate thing anyway. So, um, well, no, it, I'm going to give you the same example in the gun industry. About three years ago, a very large U.S. brass manufacturer, because the Chinese had bought all the copper, copper mm -hmm. prices had skyrocketed. It got terrifically expensive, and all of a sudden, we've got a large American brass manufacturer that's making neck walls that are thinner than the Sammy Men. Ah, yep. And we're getting calls because your dies are no good. It's not sizing my neck enough to hold the bullet. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you're right, likely because, changed <laughs> yeah the brass if so we're back to that sizing yeah, an od okay. to create an id if we have an intervening neck wall that is thinner than the minimum yep. our inside hole is going to be bigger yep and bullets drop in the cases yep so um we actually responded to that with folks and said I'll we'll, what we'll do is we will trade you a bushing die even up for your standard die yeah but you have to buy the bushing and the reason you have to buy the bushing is we don't know how bad your brass really is. You've mm. got to go and figure that out. Yep. Yep. So you still need to measure that yourself. All good. All right. So um, thank you for your time. So just a couple oh. more questions and, and yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get on with our days. It's been, it's been awesome. Awesome, Robert. Quite enjoyable. Um, 
Do you so the um do you have a favorite bit of uh reloading equipment? And not necessarily meaning the most useful or the best. It could be a nostalgic reason. There's something, you know, your your first press or die or something like that? Well, all those things are kind of gone because I went through that graduation from one one cat one level up to the next level up to the next level and then got gotcha. lucky enough to, you know, join Reading and buy part of the company. Um I have to be honest. I still think, well, at the at the high end expensive thing years ago, I was fortunate enough to be able to buy a uh, a, a brand new sort of new old stock, never used Star Universal progressive press for loading my 38 special bullseye loads, and it's just such a masterful and beautiful piece of engineering, you know, designed back in the 30s and 40s, and really just. <clears throat> To me, it is no disrespect to the Dillons or any of that, but to me, it's just the most wonderful progressive press that was ever made. Mm-hmm. Problem being, and today, you know, even with today's CNC and all the rest, you know, it'd be a six or seven or ten thousand dollar <laughs> press today just to make it. You couldn't afford to. Yeah. So I love that one from that perspective, but I I will I will say that I still love my little Lee hand primer. Because it is simplicity and, you know, we, we talk about elegance of engineering. Well, you know, Lee has had this unique ability with certain tools to make them very inexpensively, very simple to use, and yet very, very effective. Yep. And um, the little old, and mine is still the one without all the guards and special things, you know. I, I read articles years ago where they, they they called it a handheld Claymore mine if you did something <laughs> wrong with it. Well, don't do anything wrong with it where yeah. you're glasses and point it away from it. But um, <clears throat> it's just such a marvelous little piece of engineering because it's so darn simple. You know, it's about mm. four parts and it does a great job and it's very, it's very quick. I enjoy the fact that you can almost use it without having to, you know, you develop a quick muscle memory and, and if, particularly if I'm loading handguns, um, you can run through that thing so darn fast. Yep. Um, and it's just it's a it's a great little tool. So there, I'm going to be I'm going to be magnanimous, and I'm going to talk about one of our competitors and say that I love that little tool. But honestly, I use it for everything. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Um, I I have another question, and it's actually it sure. was, it's a specific question that somebody I know wanted me to ask you as well. So yeah. it's um, maybe something you want to talk to, maybe something you can talk to. It's a preference for brass finish. So. Um, it was the question was basically for brass finish for when we're going to seed it. Do you do you prefer annealed, polished carbon from having it once fired, graphite lube, the inside of that neck? What's your I guess for the bearing surface? What's your preference on that finish? Well, let's let me step away from that just for a second and talk about one thing that's interesting. Sure. Um, we tend to find more stuck cases, even with relatively good lube, occur on highly polished brass. Hmm. Okay. Well, and, and I'll give you this here. We'll think New Zealand. Think about, think about the skin of a shark. Yep. It feels like sandpaper. Yep. And it does that what to, to disrupt the surface tension of the water around it so it moves hmm. through the water more easily. Hmm. Same thing with, with dirty brass. Not dirty such that it has dirt on it, but, yeah. but used brass that has that little bit of carbon, that has that little bit of – tiny little bit of oxidation we don't see but we feel. Yep. Actually, don't polish your cases until after you size them. Mm, okay. Because you're going to be better off on – you'll have less chance of sticking the, die, of sticking the case in the die. Hmm. Uh, as far as internal, um, I will have a little bit of residual um, graphite in my necks. Um, 
I tend to use, I use uh, Redding Imperial Sizing Dye Wax on the case up to the bottom of the shoulder. And then I dunk my necks into uh, what we call our um, application media with our dry neck lube in it, which yep. is a graphite-based dry neck lube. Um, and I say graphite-based because graphite doesn't stick to brass. It's interesting. There are actually two other inert powders in there, one which sticks to graphite and one which sticks to brass, and the two of them stick to each other. <laughs> so that's how we get to there. Yep. But um, So there will be a little bit of residual um, left in the neck, possibly. Um, but really the best thing is just make sure you've got – and I also tend to run our carbide expanders because they're free-floating. They're a little bit harder. Um, I like to run that expander and just – Again, I call it ironing out the inside of the neck, making mm. the inside of the neck as sort of burnished, clean, and free of any sort of anomaly as, as possible. So truthfully, the, the, the copper alloy of a bullet, uh, the bullet jacket going into the brass in most cases, it's, it's self-lubricating enough that you really don't have to lubricate, shouldn't have to lubricate it going in. Mm. Mm. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Uh Again, Robin, thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've learned a lot. I've got to nail off some of these questions. These guys have been asking me for it. Um, I'll put a list together, and I'm sure I'll be in contact with you in another couple of months with some more questions. Happy to do any time. It's great fun. Awesome. Thank Glad you. Glad we finally got together. <laughs> finally. Yes. Take good care. <laughs>